This is day 190 of our daily Bible reading. We'll be completing Matthew chapters 16 through 20. Lord Jesus, as we enter into your presence this morning, please humble our spirits. We recognize, Lord, that you are our only hope. You are our Messiah. You are the Savior of our souls. And you have done great things in the eternity past and in our lives today. And you have so many good promises saved up for us for the future. But we are grateful that you love us so much. We don't deserve it. We did nothing to earn this. But Lord, you give it to us freely. We, it's so hard to understand that. But Lord, we are so grateful for what you've done. May our life have an attitude that reflects that. Please bless the reading of this word in Jesus' name. Amen. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out, and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, he said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many basketfuls you picked up? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand, and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man 
if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with them Peter and James and John his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, From strangers, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. 
Take that and give it to them for me and for you. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that they are angels in heaven, continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains, and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So, It is not the will of your Father, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones perish. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them. By my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times but up to seventy times seven. For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, 
Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling, and went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, and came and reported to their lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his lord said to him, You wicked slave! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers, until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came out to Jesus to test him, and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Then some children were brought to him, so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone. And do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your mother and father, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished 
and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms, for my name's sake, will receive many times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You too go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first, and the first last. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you 
shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. I am having so much fun reading this, aren't you? I mean, yes, the whole Bible should excite us like this, right? But reading the words of Jesus is something very special to me, and I'm just grateful to be able to read it. So let's go ahead and see what we have going on here with Jesus today. So he talks in chapter 16 to the Pharisees who are testing him again, and this is the second time that they've asked him for a sign. And he gives them basically the same answer as he did last time, but this time he adds some more illustration as to how can you look at the sky and figure out what the weather is going to be like, but you can't figure out what I'm doing. This is an evil and adulterous generation that will ask for a sign, but the only sign that will be given to it is the sign of Jonah. So what does he mean by that? What is the sign of Jonah? Well, the beautiful thing about this is that, first of all, he's confirming that Jonah was a real person, that he was a historical figure, not just a story or a myth. He was a real man. But secondly is what happened during the time of Jonah? Well, two things happened, right? One is that he had a message of judgment for Nineveh. So this is a message of judgment for these people as well, and he's already mentioned it a few times. For those that are not his are going to be burned in the fire, and they will go to a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's hell. He's already described that there's going to be hell for those that don't believe in Jesus. So there's that. But secondly is... He's using what happened to Jonah as symbolism for what's happening to him. It says that he spent three days in the belly of this fish in the depth of the sea, and then he was restored to the land after that. So that three days is going to be symbolic of his death and his resurrection. So it is twofold what Jonah is meant here by the sign of Jonah. So it's a message of judgment, but also of the Son of Man dying and raising from the dead. Then he goes on verse 5, and these disciples forgot bread. And what is so funny about this, I just can't help but laugh. I wanted to laugh when I read this, because this is the third time that they deal with bread in such an irresponsible way. First they feed the 5,000 with a few loaves and some fish, and you would think they would learn their lesson from that. But then they had to do it again, and they were still freaking out about it, and Jesus had it under control. He always provides. And then they forgot about bread again. <laughs> and then when Jesus said, when Jesus warned them to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, they immediately thought it was about the bread again. And Jesus was like, all right, let's talk about this. You men of little faith, why do you keep talking about bread? Did you not understand or remember the two other times that I blessed you all with tons of bread and how many baskets you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I'm not talking about bread? I'm talking about the leaven of the Pharisees, the puffed up pride of the Pharisees that try to teach you a false doctrine. Beware of them. Like, oh, okay, we get it. <laughs> this thing is hilarious how they just, it was way beyond them at that point. But it took them those three times to finally get it. Then in verse 17, we see Jesus give Simon the new name Peter. 
which is Petros in Greek, which is rock. And so he describes what that means. And so let's be clear what this is saying. This is not saying, like what the Catholics say, that this is where he's making him the first pope. This nowhere says that he has authority over other disciples, or that he's never going to die, or he's just as powerful as Jesus now. None of that happened. So all it's saying is that Peter is going to be an influential leader. He's going to be basically the leader of the first church. And so this is something that is a very high honor, but it is not to be misconstrued in a way that it means something more or something else. It's very clear what he's saying here. And it's very interesting what he's giving him. He's giving him the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. That is some very interesting language. So we need to understand that a little bit. So what he's saying is that the authority to open the doors of Christianity was given to Peter. We know that happened on the day of Pentecost, and we'll get to that when we go to the book of Acts. Because who was the first person to stand up and speak and convert people when Pentecost came? It was Peter. But then we see Peter stand up and say, look, we're not drinking, but we have been anointed by God and you need to know the gospel. And that day, thousands of people heard it and were converted. That's what it's talking about here for Peter to have the keys of the kingdom of heaven, that he is going to open the floodgates of Christianity. So that is a prophetic message, not necessarily that he became the Pope or anything like that. And regarding what it says, what you bind on earth, you will bind in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is giving apostolic authority to these men exclusively, in that you see that certain things happen when they spoke. Like, for example, you see when there were some people who were not being honest with their resources, giving it to the church, that he pronounced judgment against them right there, and they dropped dead. So it's things like that, that there's a lot of authority in the words of the apostle. This is not something that we have. This is something unique to them. So just something to be aware of. That's what that means. Verse 24 shows where Jesus says a very important piece of scripture. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, I like what Luke added, because in his, it says that Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. That seems to fit better, because that is exactly what we are called to do. We're called to deny ourselves. That doesn't mean that we deprive ourselves of things, or we beat ourselves up, or we sacrifice intentionally just for the sake of suffering. But we should be surrendering our egos, surrendering our will to the Lord. We should be denying ourselves because it's not about us. It's about Jesus. Take up your cross daily. Now, there's a thing that we have to wonder about that. Does that mean it's a public demonstration? Do we have to publicly demonstrate that we are carrying our cross? Because this term is so used incorrectly these days. Because I hear so often when something isn't going well, or something is inconvenient for somebody, what do they usually say? I guess this is my cross to bear. That is not at all what the Bible is talking about. And that is, quite honestly, an insult to whatever Jesus has been saying. We should be carrying our cross daily. And what that is, is a public demonstration of what we believe. We don't apologize for it, but it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone what you stand for. And that's the point I'm making. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to show that you follow Jesus in everything that you do. Especially to this fallen world. When you go to the office, when you go to the grocery store, when you go to your family that's not saved, You show Jesus to them in the way that you hold yourself up and you conduct yourself. That is what is expected of us. And because this is how we show the world what it's like to be Christ-like. How are they going to know who Jesus is unless we show them who he is? 
We can't be Jesus ourselves, right? But we are called to be like him. And so we need to not only follow after his example, but also we need to talk about him. It needs to be a public ministry, an outspoken ministry, not something you just keep to yourself. Because what is the alternative? The people around you live such an empty existence. They really do. And the more that I am getting older and see that, the more bleak it looks when there is no Christ in their life. Because you see in verse 26, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What price can you put in exchange for a soul? There is no cost. A human soul is priceless. And yet people are willing to give what is priceless for something temporal. And they don't recognize that. They don't recognize how significant they are in the eyes of God. How he doesn't want anyone to perish, like he talked about with the child. He doesn't want any of the children to perish. But because of sin, there are issues that we have to address. And it shouldn't be any surprise to us that this world is full of sin. And they revel in it. And so that's why our job is so important, to go out and be outspoken, carrying our cross daily, so that people can see it and wonder about it. Not only that, but they come to be knowledgeable of who Jesus is. And at that point, they either accept or reject him. Most will reject him. And that's something in your public ministry you have to know. Most of the time, they're going to say no to you. They're going to reject what you say, or they're going to mock you for it. Especially in today's world, which is such a skeptical world. But we still have to keep trying. Don't ever give up. In chapter 17, we see the transfiguration. So we see a brief glimpse here of his post-resurrection glory. And we also see Moses and Elijah appear, which is very interesting. Elijah was still alive. Remember, he went to heaven without dying, but yet Moses came back. So very interesting how that happened. So why those two guys? I don't really know, but what is significant about their lives in particular Moses represented not only the law, and he he represents death, and God handled his soul, but also we see through Elijah, we see translation, where we see how he didn't die. He just went straight to heaven. So it was almost as if it was a foreshadowing of what was going to happen to Christ. What Peter wanted to do was build some temporary shelters for them, some tabernacles. And yet God was like, just listen to him, please. And then when they stood up, Jesus was there by himself, and he was back in his normal form. And then he told them not to tell anybody about it until after he had rose from the dead. And I'm sure at the time they didn't understand what that meant, but they didn't tell anybody after that. Now, in this situation, in verse 17, we see that there's a man who has a son who is demon-possessed. And it's apparently a very strong demon because they tried to cast it out and they were not able to, and yet Jesus did it effortlessly because he's God. Why weren't we able to get it out? And he tells them it's because of the littleness of their faith and that they needed more faith in order to do this. Now, I talk about this because in verse 21 in my Bible, it's in brackets. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Again, Be very careful what you believe on this. It may or may not be true, I guess is the best way to say it. Take it for a grain of salt. It makes sense with the narrative, but at the same time, what we saw in the original manuscripts, or at least the oldest ones that we have on record, this was not written in there. But yet somewhere shortly thereafter, in the next century or so, copies started showing that. So just be careful, because it seems like somebody added it later. But it wasn't probably Matthew himself that wrote that. So it makes you wonder, is that really the inspired Word of God then? That's why it's in brackets. And if you eliminate this piece, then it doesn't change anything. Because what is the root problem? The root problem was the disciples not having enough faith. And that's the root problem. 
chapter 18 starts talking about having childlike faith. And so that's why he puts a child in front of them and says that if you are converted and become like children, then you will come into the kingdom of heaven. Otherwise, you won't. So you have to humble yourself like a child. And if you do, you will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then about the lost. This is very important for us. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. Oh, there's tons of them, aren't they? They get me all the time. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, right? I mean, that's normal. That should not surprise us that there are stumbling blocks. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. That is the worst thing that you could be described as. The one causing the stumbling blocks for someone. There is greater condemnation for them. Not only that, but James talks about how those who are in leadership in a church, like a Sunday school teacher or a pastor, they will come under greater judgment if they lead people astray. I heard the other day a uh, one of my favorite pastors, Paul Washer, he was interviewed by someone, and they were asking him questions about things. And one thing he mentioned is that to worry about on the end times, don't worry so much about the people who are in sin, but the ones that should be scared for the judgment are the pastors who are not right, for the pastors that are leading people astray. Those are the ones that will suffer greater condemnation, and those are the ones that should be afraid. So we cannot be those people. We cannot be ones who lead people astray. That's why in my personal ministry, either here on this podcast or when I'm at church, I've got my own problems. You know, we all do. I get dragged down and I get off track at times in my personal life, but I have made a commitment to God that I will never let it come through in what I teach. Because the only thing that I'm allowed to teach is the Word of God. I should not be teaching anything else. And if I do, I need to preface it with saying it's my personal opinion. But really, anything that comes out of my mouth needs to be godly. So in, even if I'm in error in my personal life, I am never going to let it affect other people. Because I understand and I fear what Jesus is saying here. I will not be a stumbling block to somebody else because I can't control myself. I don't want people to be dragged down with me in my problems. So I, that's my effort that I make every day on that. Then he talks about church discipline, which at a glance doesn't make a lot of sense because the church hasn't been started yet. But he's giving them doctrines to consider right now. And so this is something that we do actively as a church today. So if we have an issue with somebody within our body of believers that sins, there's a proper way to handle them. And if they listen, great. If they don't, then we need to excommunicate them. I mean, that sounds really old school and archaic, but that's the truth. Because if they are cancerous to a body, we need to remove the cancer. And there's a proper way to do it, though. So that's why Jesus is very specific on how it's done. But I also love that no matter how big your church is, no matter how big your Bible study is, when two or three are gathered in his name, he is there. He will bless it. And that is beautiful. And he understands that not everybody is going to be, like we talked about yesterday, a Billy Sunday. But whatever your level of influence is, Jesus will be there if you are doing it legitimately in his name. Then the last part of chapter 18 is where Peter asks how many times to forgive someone. And Jesus says 70 times 7, so that's 490 times I'm supposed to forgive someone, right? No, what he's illustrating here is that we should never have a cap on how much we forgive people doesn't mean we forget, and doesn't mean that we let people take advantage of us, but we certainly do forgive them. And then he gives a parable to illustrate that point. He's, what he's illustrating here is that he is the ruler, he is the Lord in this story. He is the Lord. He saw that one of his servants owed him 10,000 talents. 
Do we understand how much money that is? A talent was likely about a year's worth of pay. A year's worth of money. And this man owed 10,000 talents. He owed 10,000 years worth of money. He could never repay that. That's the whole point, is he could never repay that because his debt was so high. And that is to illustrate our lives as sinners. We have a debt in our sin that we cannot repay. So somebody had to resolve it for us. And that was Jesus Christ. So he is the Lord that sits on that throne, and he saw the destitute situation of this servant, and he had compassion on him, and he forgave him his entire debt. That's what he does for us at salvation. But yet at the same time, we are supposed to, in the same way, forgive others. Like what happened to this guy. After he got forgiven by the Lord, then he went to his peers and he could not forgive them for debt that they had against him. And then when the Lord heard about it, what did he do? He was angry, and he took away all of his rights, and he threw him in prison. He handed him over to be with the torturers, and they shall repay all that was owed him, and you cannot repay that. The Lord is going to do that for the fallen world as well. This is an illustration of those who are his chosen people and those who are going to hell. It's a very clear picture here. God constantly forgives, and we need to be the same way. And that's the main point. Chapter 19 talks about a time where the Pharisees approached Jesus about marriage. Now, this is an important piece of Scripture, because this talks about here what God intended for it all along. And it has never changed, and it is never going to change. The world is trying to change it so desperately, but this is what God intended. From the very beginning, God hates divorce. Didn't we read that in Malachi? God hates divorce. But why did he allow divorce to take place? And Jesus answers that. Because of your hardness of heart. Because of your stubbornness. And Jesus absolutely does not condone any divorce, except he makes one condition. He only allows divorce under adultery. If a spouse is committing adultery, then that is grounds for divorce. Otherwise, there is no reason why anyone should get divorced, because there is something very significant about marriage. There's something very significant about the dynamic of a husband and a wife how the two become one flesh. It's a great mystery. Now, what's very interesting about this is that this is probably the closest as a human being that we can get in communion with someone else, how the Lord, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are constantly in communion with themselves because they are one. There are three persons, but they are one. In the same way, a husband and a wife are two persons, but they are one. It is very mysterious how that works, and I don't know even the half of it. But there's something very significant about it, and for that reason alone, we need to take marriage seriously. So this generation thinks it's okay to divorce for every stupid reason, but that's not what God intended. And Jesus sets the record straight right here. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. There are only two genders. Sorry you don't like that, take it up with God, not with me. And then it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It doesn't say a man shall cleave to another man. There is no homosexuality mentioned in here because homosexuality is evil. Everything going on right now with transgenderism, with homosexuality, it's all perversion, all of it. Does that mean that they can't go to heaven? Don't go there. Sin is sin. God sees all sin the same. It is all a violation of his law. Just because you're homosexual doesn't mean that you are any more condemned than a liar or than a murderer or than somebody who says they're a Christian and is judging people. You're all the same. You're all sinners. And God can forgive any of it. So don't be pointing fingers like, well, I'm better off than this person. No, you're not. 
You're not. You are just as much of a sinner as they are, and you don't see it. And because of that arrogance, you blind yourself. We should be praying for our enemies. Pray for those who are struggling with homosexuality or identity, because it is it is a spiritual sickness. Only God can heal that. Chapter 19 has other good stories in here, such as when he interacts with the rich young ruler who seems to obey everything except he cannot give up his possessions. And we cannot be those people. We cannot be the ones who try to do everything right, but there's that one area that God cannot touch. And especially when it comes to wealth. Wealth is such a powerful influence over people. And it's for that reason that he says that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is impossible, than for a rich man to go to heaven. And then you just see the disciples throw their hands up, like, well, who's going to get saved then? We're all screwed. <laughs> but God responds saying, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Salvation doesn't depend upon you. There's nothing you can do to earn your way to heaven. It is all a gift from God. Now, let's be clear about what's happening here in chapter 20, and we'll end it with right there. Is He gives a parable about a man who's hiring laborers. So what we have to understand from this is that if we look at it at a distance from, from human economics, it doesn't seem fair. Because you have guys who worked in the field all day for a denarius, and then you have guys who came at the very end for an hour and got the same amount of money. That's not fair. Well, no, it's not in, in human economics, but that's not what it's talking about here. What it's talking about is the reward of being willing to serve, whether early or late. Ultimately, we all have the same reward as believers. Some are called to great things. Some are called to minor things. Some are called early on in their lives to serve the Lord. Some people are called in their elder years to serve the Lord. Ultimately, when God is calling us to his service, we need to obey him, whether late or early, whether for a lot of money or for a little bit of money. It's all the same because God is the one behind it. He is the one who will bless it. So Christ is not teaching economics here, let's be clear. So what he's talking about is a good and normal wage for everyone, and we should all be grateful for what we are given, and not envious of people who have more. If we are permitted to work hard for God, there will be rewards. We may not see the rewards yet, but God promises that we are storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven, and that should mean something. If we know that this is just a small step in eternity, the right here and now on earth, then what we do matters greatly. For the long term, for those people who like to invest their money in things, invest your time in God, because then you will reap the rewards later. Serve Him with all your heart. And with that, that's enough for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.